1: The C.S. Lewis Podcast
2: with Alistair McGrath.
0: Hello, and welcome to the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. This week, we're bringing you a special programme which was originally broadcast in 2013 on Unbelievable. Justin Briley hosted a discussion between Holly Ordway and Laura Miller. Holly grew up as an atheist before converting to Christianity in her adult years. The fantasy work of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were an important part of her journey to faith. Holly was speaking with atheist writer Laura Miller, the author of The Magician's Book, A Skeptic's Adventures in Narnia. To listen to other episodes of Unbelievable, check out our website where you can also find lots of great articles as well as more C.S. Lewis content. Visit premierunbelievable.com. For now, here's Justin's conversation with Holly and Laura.
2: Two very special guests joining me on the programme today as we talk about literature. Specifically, um, whether it makes sense to use literature to point people towards Christianity, away from Christianity. How best to use literature when it comes to the different worldviews that exist in the world today? Uh, That's the topic of today's programme. Let me introduce the guest to you. You're unbelievable. Well, it's my great pleasure to be joined in the studio by Holly Ordway, who's a poet, a Christian apologist, and chair of the Department of Apologetics at Houston Baptist University. She has a story of actually being converted from atheism as an adult to Christianity via literature and poetry. It's in her book, Not God's Type. And you can find out more about her at her website, hieropraxis.com. Com. Uh, Laura Miller is my other guest, joining us by phone from the States, uh, also an American. Uh, she joined me on the programme actually a few years ago, and if you go back in the archives, you'll find a really interesting discussion between her and C.S. Lewis scholar Michael Ward when she came on to talk about her book, The Magician's Book, A Skeptic's Adventures in Narnia. Well, Laura's an atheist, a writer and book reviewer for Salon.com, and she's going to be interacting with Holly on this question of using literature uh, to promote or not other worldviews. Uh, thank you both for being with me on the programme today. And before we come to Laura, let's uh, introduce Holly, who's new to the programme. Thank you for joining me today.
3: Well, I'm just delighted to be here.
2: It's great to have you. Um, Holly, your name's come up before. Uh, I've certainly wanted to have you on the show for a while. Uh, so I was so pleased when I heard you were going to be over in in England, um, spending some time, I think, in Oxford is where you're, you're based, just, just for uh, part of the summer. Um, But let's go back to the beginning for those who have no idea who you are, um, because you've got a really interesting story of becoming a Christian, not necessarily by a very conventional route. It was really through engaging with literature, which has been a passion pretty much your whole life, hasn't it?
3: Yeah, it has. And the interesting thing is, um, and this is something I wrote about in my book, Not God's Type, um, that when it when it came down to a certain point in my life, apologetic arguments were were very important, um actually looking at the rational basis, um the arguments for the existence of God for the resurrection. But the question that has has been sticking with me over the past couple of years since I wrote that book has been what got me to the point that I was <clears throat> interested in these questions and and how how did that how did that make a difference? And what I realized is that um, it was, my engagement with literature all all through my life, imagination has been just so important to me. As a voracious reader, um, read everything I get my hands on. Love fantasy, love um, you know folk tales. When I got into college, love poetry, and then it ended up being when I was thirty one that it was encountering, um, re encountering actually poets that I had had learned about as an undergraduate, and. Glimpsing the Christian worldview through their poetry, especially John Donne, um, his his uh, Holy Sonnet that starts out "Batter my heart, three person God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend," and goes on from there. And I thought, "Wow, there's there's something happening here that I don't understand. Um, this is it's like it's tapping into something powerful that." In retrospect, I think it was finally connecting to my imagination that had been sort of all along kind of bubbling beneath the surface, and that was what prompted me to start investigating Christianity. And then actually C.S. Lewis in particular played an important role in the last, sort of the last stage of it. So I, like, like C.S. Lewis, as discovered later, um, I had a, a two-step conversion, it was converted first to theism, and then separately, in a sense, to mm. Christianity. And Lewis was really important with that, that second step.
2: And, and in a sense, you you seem to share a lot in common with him in terms of the, the passion for literature. He obviously was a voracious reader, a writer himself, loved poetry as well, though I don't think he ever quite scaled the heights he hoped to on that front. But he, he you get this sense, especially reading things like his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, that that seeing something transcendent in the literature he was engaged with started that journey for him towards opening him up to theism and eventually to Christianity?
3: I think, yes, um, but I think it's a little bit more complex than that as well because I think that what he felt was a vast sense of of longing, what he what he calls joy in his autobiography. And he was looking for something that would satisfy that, and failing to find it in everything that he tried um, and eventually concluding at a certain point that that, rationally speaking, he didn't think that anything could satisfy it and yet imaginably he still had this, this longing. Mm-hmm. And so then eventually he, he realized that philosophically and rationally, theism made sense and so he got part of the way there. And so he was a theist, but what was missing was still the imaginative connection. And I think the what drew him in in the end was that he realized not that he was looking for God, not at all, I don't think. In rather, it was that what he was looking for turned out to be found in God, mm. which – surprised and I think a little horrified him. And I think those are not exactly the same thing. Yes.
2: And, and he describes himself, of course, as the most reluctant convert in all England, you know, in in that section of his autobiography. And of course, when it came to that step to Christianity, it was another famous literary figure, J.R.R. Tolkien, his his good friend in Oxford, who was part of that journey himself um, to, to, to sort of bring him into that last aspect of understanding. The I mean, when it comes to the Narnia stories, which is, of course, what C.S. Lewis remains best known for and what obviously Laura um, will be talking about as well uh, as she joins us, the the fact is many people, when engaging as children with the stories, don't realise that there is this Christian subtext. I didn't. Right. And so, exactly. And, and w- w- at what point did you realise? Was it as, as an adult, looking back a bit, you started to realise, OK, yeah, there are some obvious parallels here
3: it was actually quite quite a bit later and that's why laura i was I was quite intrigued by you having similar similar experience because our our experience is tracked quite well i think um i first encountered the chronicles of narnia i think when i was about six or seven i don't even remember um i just remember that i read them in the proper order um
2: <laughs>
3: and um that, that, yes,
2: that, that's a bit, a bit of a bone of contention itself, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I was delighted
3: much, yeah. to see that you had the proper order listed in there. Hooray. Um, so I read them. I loved them. Just was imaginatively nourished by them. But I was raised in a completely non-Christian family. Not hostile, but not Christian at all. So all of the Christian elements were completely just absent for me. Um, and I engaged with them as the imaginative, the imaginative richness was there, and actually, I, I, I quite I think that Michael Ward's done a lot of great work in ex- helping to explain and unpack why the stories have the effect that they do, even if you don't get any of the the direct symbolism um, or the direct connections. So I loved them as a as a mm. little kid. Loved them even I think into my teens because I had no exposure to Christianity. I didn't know. Um, I thought it was a little surreal that there was a a lamb with fish at the end of The Dawn Treader. But I thought, well, this is a fantasy world. That's okay. And it was really not, I think, and I don't quite remember when. It was in, I think, my 20s that I finally, you know, cottoned on. And I was really ticked off (laughs) because at that point I had become – I had consciously – become an atheist because I, I thought this, you know, Christianity doesn't make any sense. I, you know, it's, it's superstition. I, I don't need any of that. And I actually felt, I think, actually, I think your word is a good word, Laura, at first a little betrayed. How dare he smuggle in this <laughs> Christian stuff into these stories. And I was really angry. And then I ended up, um, I wrote my dissertation on fantasy literature. And so I worked a great deal with um, Tolkien and with, um, with Lewis and interestingly, it was in writing that chapter um, on on religious fantasy and writing about Lewis's use of the, of the Chronicles to, you know, convey Christian ideas. That actually was what reconciled me to the way that he had used Christianity in them. Because what I realized, when I actually went back and looked at the stories, is that he isn't actually shoving Christianity in my face because everything in the story works perfectly and beautifully as a story, and there's another level that's there if you want to engage with it. Mm. And
2: well, I, I was going to say th- this is where we should probably bring Laura in <laughs> because this is very much touching on the, the issues that she raises in in her book, the Magician's Book. Um, Laura, thank you for joining me on the program today. Um, really pleased to, to have you in this conversation. Uh, just for those who perhaps haven't heard the program of a few years ago we, we did with you, do you want to just briefly fill us in on your background and uh, what you do, and and um, where Narnia came in as a child for you, and and th- this reaction you had once you did find out the the sort of Christian symbolism.
1: Sure. Um, well, the book that I wrote, the Magician's Book, is sort of the story of of my experience, and it's woven in with some literary criticism and some biographical. Uh, stuff about uh, c s Lewis and a little bit of Tolkien in there as well, um, but simply put, I was given the books in when I was about seven, I was in the second grade by a favorite teacher, and I completely loved them. They were my favorite books through my whole childhood and then when I was in my early teens um, and, and i was i had I became very interested in 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 fantasy, children's fantasy, and that was almost all that I read. Um, it definitely was my favorite type of book. I was pursuing it, trying to sort of follow it into the different adult forms that were out there and trying to find more books, and I read a, a history of fantasy literature, one of the very early ones, because this was back in the 70s, and that was how uh, I was informed that there was that. Of the Christian subtext or symbology in in the chronicles, and I became I became very upset and uh, and I felt betrayed, as as Holly put it. I was raised in a Christian household. I was raised as a Catholic. Um, we were we we were sort of in a liberal Catholic church, so it was not um, super gothic or anything like that. But um, but I was um, I you know I had my first communion and I was confirmed. Probably around the same time that um, that I found out uh, about the Christian aspect of, of, of Narnia, uh, so I went pretty far along in Christian education, and yet you know I, I somebody had to point out that aspect of, of the Chronicles. Here, I, I just I didn't even really realize that. I think that there's a a way that a child experiences a story that is really different from the way that an adult does. The, um, the idea of there being simultaneous layers of meaning in it is, is much more of an adult concept. And that's why, in my experience, having written this book about Narnia, and as a result talked to a lot of people about Narnia and their experiences reading it as a child, almost, almost nobody, unless they are told in advance, as a child, reading those books, r- realises that they have this other meaning.
2: Mm. So having had this sort of a bit of a letdown as far as the books were concerned and, and feeling a bit uh, betrayed and uh, and whatnot, uh, did, 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 did that kind of put you off the idea generally of what might be seen as smuggling Christian ideas into literature? Do you think that's a bit underhand, especially perhaps when it comes to children's literature where if you like, there's less of an ability to critically engage Christian ideas and so on?
1: It's, it's hard to describe because I think that specifically I had come to not be very happy with my experience of Christianity, or with Christianity as I knew it. Mm. and um, And that made me unhappy with C.S. Lewis and the Narnia books. But I don't know that I necessarily was ever very pleased about um, children's literature that was, was trying to instruct me. I, I'm, my, my mother and my grandmother had given me this book, uh, probably it seems that nobody else has ever heard of it, but it, my grandmother liked it as a child, um, called Elsie Dinsmore, and she was a very, uh, very virtuous child who uh, had all of these sort of adventures with her family. They weren't even really adventures. It was just a a very boring sort of domestic novel in which she exhibited her Christian virtues at every opportunity in the most priggish and annoying way. And I I loathed her. I don't know why I finished the book, but I, I probably was just desperate for reading material. But that to me represented the sort of morally, um, You know, uh, sanctimonious
2: kind of yeah yeah,
1: literature. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's not that I ever thought that Narnia was like that. I mean, you know, looking back, obviously it's silly to feel betrayed by something having more than one meaning. But I think that the the it was more that what Narnia meant to me personally was not compatible with this idea, and so I felt that um, I had been thrown out of this really sort of cherished relationship because it was not compatible with the idea that it was giving me religious instruction.
3: Well, it's interesting because in a a way I I, I would kind of push back a little bit and I would say that the fact that you didn't notice that it was Christian until it was pointed out to you almost kind of cuts against the idea that it was giving religious instruction. And I think, you know, for me looking at, you know, literature, that I think is effective as literature and literature that's not. Um, I think the element of didacticism is, is genuinely really annoying.
2: Um, I think the the Elsie Gills, Ginsmore or whoever it is.
3: Yeah. Um, and I think that sort of Elsie factor is, is not limited to Christianity, although it's often very obtrusive. There's a lot of really, you know, hideously awful Christian literature and I will be the first to say it and have said it publicly on many occasions. Um, but you also get, um, I mean, for instance, um, Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials Trilogy, which is imaginatively very rich, it's very well written, and it veers off towards the end into pure rant. Um, It's sanctimonious atheism, which I think spoils the books. Um, And I think you get that with, for instance, modern-day realistic so-called problem novels where the virtues are things like do it your own way and, you know, stand up for what you believe in, whatever that might be. I think there's a whole set of modern secular humanist virtues that modern secular humanist writers can be awfully sanctimonious about. So I think that element is what I I think is genuinely objectionable. But I I actually would say that's precisely what we don't have in the Chronicles of Narnia or something like um, the Lord of the Rings. And I think we can tell that it's not there because because I mean, as a child, you were able to see in Elsie Dinsmore it was overt. That right. that says that it was there in a way that it that I would say maybe mm. wasn't in Lewis.
1: Yeah, no, I I'm, I would not argue with you on that, Holly. I don't think that um, that the Narnia books, for the most part, have anything particularly um, pedantic about them or convey, you know, this this sort of um, luxury thing that, that that I subjected to in Elsie Dinsmore. Um, I think that that as I said it was more that I had a particular relationship with Narnia personally mm-hmm. that um, that I felt had been sort of overthrown by this this revelation that was not compatible with this revelation because I, I think that I wanted to believe that the story just that, that what was on the the, the Top level of the story was the most important thing, and part of the thing, part of what I write about in my book is uh, there's often this idea that people have when they're talking about the chronicles that um, that you know that they are deceptive. I, I, I don't agree with that anymore. That's how I felt about it before. That they that, that that children are stupid or or just naive, let's say, and they don't get it, and that once you're an adult and you realize that they have this, uh, you know, quote, agenda, unquote, um, you know what's really going on with the stories. And and part of the point of, of my book is that it isn't necessarily true that the layer of meaning that's a little bit deeper that you don't get, or uh, the layer of meaning that's less overt, let me say, that you don't get when you're a child is any less important than the layer of meaning that you reach just on the level of the story that is what you respond to as a child that that none of those different levels of meaning is more important than any other
3: yeah I would completely agree with you on that um, and actually I think that's one of the one of the reasons why the current state of of literature written by Christians is so ghastly because I, I think you get Folks who very well-intentioned, but I want to whack them upside the head, uh, you know, in a, in a gracious <laughs> – In a Christian way. Yes. In a Christian way um, <laughs> because they think that they have a good intention and a good moral and they think that therefore they will write a book that is only on the overt level. Um, and I mean Lewis himself is very clear about this. He, he talks in his um, in his essay on um, – I think it's on stories. I could get that wrong. Um, he talks – or maybe it's some of his fairy stories may say best what's to be said. Anyway, um, he, he says that there are two kind of two voices that have to be considered when you're thinking about a story. And one's the author's voice, um, which is the voice of creativity, of story, of invention. Um, and then there's the man's voice, which is um, the voice of, of sort of value. Um, and the author's voice says, I have a great story. I want to tell it. And the man's voice says, but is it a story that's worth telling? Is this a good story? And he says that if you have only the man's voice, only the values, the story can't be told because it won't be a story. And if you have only the author's voice with total disregard for values, it shouldn't be told. Now, he, he's making a case for bringing them together. Mm-hmm. Now, sadly, I think he he was partly wrong. Because I think you actually can tell a story with just the man's voice, which is just the values. It's really a bad story. (laughs) And we get too much of that. And you get people trying to read stories just that way.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, coming to this issue of, you know, you've said straight up there's a lot of bad Christian literature out there. I mean, I discovered uh, in a Christian bookstore when I visited America a kind of retelling of the Narnia story. I won't name names or (laughs) publishers or anything, but it was basically turning what was already a children's book into a real children's book, if you know what I mean. Simplified the language, took one strand of the story. It was Edmund's sort of struggle with the White Witch. Kind of basically made it a lot more blatantly Christian. And I just thought to myself, would Lewis be turning in his grave seeing that done to his book? Um, Because he obviously had a very specific purpose in mind it would appear of of not just making a christian book in that sense uh, as as you've mentioned i we, we're going to sort of open this out a bit i think it would be be fun to talk about generally literature just aside from just narnia but um a, a, a quote that um, that always um, s- strikes me as interesting from from Lewis. Um, I think it comes from Surprised by Joy, uh, where he says, "A young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. There are traps everywhere." Uh, I, I I don't know whether for you, Laura, anything you've ever read makes you think, "Well, I I don't believe in God, but I feel like." it would be nice if there were a God because this makes sense of this literature or this feeling, this transcendent thing that I seem to be encountering. This was certainly appears to be part of Holly's journey. I don't know if you can relate on that to that at any level yourself.
1: Well, um, it's difficult to, to, to say because it's, it's always difficult in, in talking with, um, with believers because, um, for the believer, there's there's a, a reality that you know that they live in that I am sort of unaware of, or sort of operating on a, uh, a, you know, in a kind of another plane. And if I'm lucky, you know, I could fall through that hole and be in in the reality that they they live in. Whereas, you know, I just don't experience it that way. And so, so. I don't think I ever really feel in danger of, you know, accidentally believing or, this <laughs> hard to describe, or sort of stumbling into it. I mean, my my interpretation of Lewis's path, uh, as I perceive it, having read a lot of this stuff, is that, um, is that he found himself really... Wanting to believe, he found himself basically a sort of larval believer, and then he needed. Then he he was able to find the 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 pathway to that through sort of uh, a different, you know, artistic or or intellectual or or philosophical uh, paths towards this thing that he wanted. What 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 Holly was talking about before. I just haven't really felt that desire and so um, and and it's very it's just kind of impossible to accidentally or sort of inadvertently come into a state of, of a desire to believe so so no I mean I've read um, works of literature that have emerged from all different kinds of of faith without um, feeling and, and, really and when you and
2: when you read that thing that makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up you don't think do you do you just say well that's just the way i'm responding it doesn't make you think is this talking about something beyond just itself
1: well it, it's um you know every piece of a culture is 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 part of something greater because uh, a culture and then a, all of the creative works of humanity are also a larger thing. So, uh, you know, I mean, I know the experience you're talking about, definitely. I just don't interpret it as a religious experience or as a proto-religious experience. Mm. I I mean, I I, I, I don't experience it as something small or limited just because it's not religious. Well, that's, that's
3: interesting because I think this whole idea of of a desire to believe, I, I don't think that's what Lewis is talking about. And that wasn't, that wasn't at all my experience, for instance. Um, I, in, insofar as I had any desire related to religion, it was in fact a desire to stick to my atheism because I thought it it was, it was what I believed to be true. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't want to become a Christian. I mean, there are also is the a practical reason why I didn't want to become a Christian too. I thought, I thought it would be embarrassing. Um, it, it was, it was, so I think I think for myself, and I think also as I read Lewis, I don't at all see it as a desire to believe in God. I find it's a desire to grasp that transcendent reality that is just just outside of the grasp of of, of, of the present moment, and and what that is isn't labeled as this is belief in God. Um, and actually, I think. Be- I would say that I, if I wanted to believe, that would undercut any possibility of me believing because then it just becomes me trying to convince myself of something. It's a desire to encounter. And that's what literature sort of did for me was to orient me towards this, this thing that whatever it was, was actually much bigger
2: than I thought. We're going to have to take a quick break folks. Fascinating conversation so far. Um, My guests today are Holly Ordway, who's a poet, a Christian apologist from the States. Uh, Her book, Not God's Type, tells of her journey from atheism to Christianity via literature. And that's the subject today as we continue the discussion with Laura Miller, who is the author of The Magician's Book, A Skeptic's Adventures in Narnia. Come back again in a short moment's time. This is Unbelievable, the show that aims to get you thinking. Uh, my guests today are Holly Ordway, who's a poet, Christian apologist and chair of the Department of Apologetics at Houston Baptist University. But uh, spending a little time over in England this summer, uh, she uh, was available to come into our studio here in London and has been talking to us about her journey to faith via uh, literature, via apologetics, hieropraxis.com if you want to find out more about her, where she blogs re- regularly. And um, if you can't spell that, <laughs> well, that's just... Holly, you know, made a very bad choice a few (laughs) years ago about (laughs) what... what to call her blog. But um, what does hieropraxis actually mean? It is a
3: made-up word. I did a very um, Humpty Dumpty thing and invented a portmanteau word. I do not know (laughs) Greek, but I took two Greek roots. I took hiero, which means um, holy. That's where we get hieroglyphics, holy writing of the Egyptians, Mm -hmm. and praxis, which means practice um, or living out. It's a place where I and uh, some other writers um, who write for me sort of explore what it means to live out of the Christian life with all of its, its complexities and you can also go to hollyordway.com and it'll redirect you
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's the easy version yeah Yeah. so anyway um also laura miller with us on the line a writer and book reviewer for salon.com which she helped to found and author of the magician's book a skeptic's adventures in narnia she came on a few years ago actually to talk to us about this with michael ward who i think is a colleague of yours isn't he he is now yes um at houston baptist university but um it relates in the book this idea of kind, of kind of being disappointed, a bit betrayed at the idea that, that Lewis had sort of smuggled in this Christian imagery, uh, which she just hadn't realised until later on. Um, I mean, we've talked about that, Laura, but when it comes to um, what, what Holly was saying there about the way uh, literature done well, it, it sort of for her pointed beyond itself had this sense of some, something bigger. Uh, that's there now you're you're not you said you as an atheist you don't deny that literature has this expansive quality and and so on um but but you obviously uh, fall short of of sort of feeling like you have to go to any kind of supernatural level in terms of the way that you those feelings those emotions that 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 it engenders within you that, that they don't point to anything presumably beyond just what you can be explained in in natural terms
1: uh, yeah, that's correct. I mean, I would not. I would describe myself as more of an agnostic than an atheist because there's a level of sort of um, uh, kind of uh, certainty about atheism that I'm not that comfortable with. But um, but I would say I'm kind of close to it. But um, but yeah, I, I think that I I do agree with Holly. I pre- perhaps I put it wrong that I think that that. Uh Lewis had this sort of hungering after transcendence and a hungering after some sort of understanding of the 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 desire for transcendence and transcendence itself, and that well I think what he came, what happened was that he came to terms with um the idea that that religion answered that for him i it just has never done that for me and so it, it to me, it just doesn't feel like it's pointing in that. Particular direction, um, but I can understand how that's difficult for for, for people who who whose desire of that kind of satisfied by religion to understand. It's just um, I I just it just doesn't really work for me.
3: Well, I'm interested actually in in the way that you you talk about Lewis's um, desire for transcendence was satisfied by religion, and um, actually I would I would push back a little bit there because I think religion is far too generic a term because religion is a is a kind of category term for various ways that we understand you know is there a supernatural level to life is there transcendence what does it look like and the christian worldview is is a religion but i think what's i think what's distinctive about lewis's journey and and indeed about mine um i did not become religious um i became first a theist, which was sort of a non-religious view, of a philosophical view of God. There is a first cause. And then I became a Christian, as as Lewis did. And I think I would kind of set that against, in contrast to, you know, accepting religion, because it's not religion, broadly speaking. It's the specifically Christian understanding of the world, which is that there is a, a, a creator who has a – who is himself Trinity and who – you know, has made the world and it's good, and there is there's fallenness in in man. However, you understand that, and that there is um, an act, actions in history that that provide an explanation for how God has resolved this this brokenness, and I think that's a very very specific set of philosophical and historical claims that, if they're true, are quite distinctly different from other religious claims. Um, or more loosely, sort of, you know, spiritual claims about the world. And so I think that's something that's worth thinking about is the specificity of it. I, I don't think it's about embracing religion. It's sort of like talking about, I'm hungry, I don't eat food, I have, you know, I have a piece of toast. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> what d- Does the idea of I mean I don't know how you react in general to Holly's journey and Lewis's journey but but for you Laura this idea of god sort of being overlaid on reality and and indeed then informing the way you react to to literature to to the way you read is did, is that for you um an alien idea does does that sound like it would ruin your reading experience if suddenly god were there sort of an imposition upon the way you then had to view the world and, and view the all the different kinds of literature that you that come across your path?
1: Um, I don't think so. If I if I believed in God it would probably be a you know, an important part of my experience of 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 literature. I I don't um, I you know, I think that one of the things that Lewis wrote about in his literary criticism, which is now probably my favorite of the types of writing that he engaged in, after Narnia, of course, um, was the degree to which, you know, any particular work of literature is like a... It's a different experience for every person who reads it, and the experience of reading is creative, and, and people bring... A different, every reader brings a different self to the work, and and, it, and the reading experience is a collaboration with the author. I think in his book about Milton, he he describes Milton as a musician, but, but the reader as the instrument. And so, of course, you can't have a great reading without a great instrument as well as a, a great player. And so, um, so I think that that would just be one of the ways that one of the – one of the ways that I would experience,
3: um, you know, any kind of encounter with art. Well, it's interesting. Cause then in, I, I, remember in your, in your book, you noted the, the interesting way that many different people responded to Narnia the way you did. Um, I mean, I, I did, um, Neil Gaiman did, um, Francis Bufford did. Um, and I, I think it's, it's interesting because it suggests, and, and I would I would argue that it suggests that what allows for this commonality of experience, not a universality of experience, because I think what we bring to the to the text actually matters a great deal, but the fact that there's that there, there's this responsiveness, um, to me suggests that there's there's a, a something true about what he writes. What he what he has written is in some way true to the reality of of the world that we live in and I think because he's writing about Narnia which is clearly not a quote-unquote realistic story that truth whatever it might be has to be on some level that's not purely representational
1: yeah but that I mean that is true of the Odyssey for example um, there you know it I, I think part of the effectiveness of 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 Narnia is that it so deeply rooted in Western culture, and that every person who grows up in, in, in Western culture experiences, I'm trying to think of the right word, um, a, a whole sort of symphony of, of motifs and symbols and meanings and ideas that he, because of his incredible command of the literature, is able to. I would almost feel unconsciously invoke, and ideas of, of meaning or of of uh, morality or of character or of story that, that he just uh, had almost just completely absorbed into his self and was able to sort of express in this fluid, fluid way. Uh, If you know, uh, I know a lot of novelists, and in my experience, the best storytellers among them are people who feel when they're writing as if they're just, that it's just sort of coming to them or flowing out of them, and that those are the most successful stories that they tell when they're writing experiences like that, as opposed to merely uh, intellectual or, or deliberate. and. I think part, you know, many of them talk about how the experience of reading a lot and sort of incorporating and, and digesting that enables them to, to have that sort of, it feels almost like instinctual storytelling ability.
3: Well, I think that the, certainly Lewis was a tremendous, tremendous reader, but I don't think that the drawing of, of cultural elements into the Narnia books accounts for the, it resolves the problem of reception. Because I think for, say, a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old or, you know, a 12-year-old reading, that age at which the, the chronicles are so magical, um, I'm slightly skeptical of the extent to which, the especially in, you know, modern educational um, system, yeah, um, I'm, I'm a little skeptical as to the extent to which Western culture um, is, is, is what's being responded to. What I would suggest is actually that Lewis is he is indeed, I think, drawing on the various images, the, the planetary um, images, the the overall feel to construct his stories. But it's I don't think it's dependent on that Western culture for its effect. I mean, Laura, you noted in your book that you encountered fawns, for instance, um, for the first time, if I understand correctly, in Narnia. And you were delighted by them, um, delighted by the talking animals, and then went on later to find, you know, sort of their originals in, in you know, Greek myth and things like that. It's actually somewhat similar to my own experience. Now, I, I would suggest that if Lewis's stories, um, like Tolkien's, um, I think they resonate without needing to make the connection. Um, you don't have to know where these connections come from. You don't have to have ever read Beowulf to think that the Hobbit's just a, you know, tremendously good story. Um, when you know it actually has an element from Beowulf, it's just much more awesome. Um, <laughs> but I, I think, uh, again, I'm it points not, to a kind of transcendence there.
1: I'm not actually, I, I mean, any, obviously when I was seven years old, I had not read anything about classical mythology or any of those things, but I still was completely saturated by Western culture because that's the culture that I grew up in. I'm not talking about a deliberate or overt sighting of symbols. I'm talking about ways of thinking that are embedded in our language and the way that we interact with the world and with the stories that you hear as a child um, You know, before you're able to read yourself. These are all part of Western culture that has certain kind of structures and motifs. And, and, and uh, Psychologists have found that people that it's even in the language, so that so that people who grow up speaking Eastern languages often have a completely or a significantly different way of looking at the world and the role of human beings in the world. Um, it's it, you know almost on the structural level of of grammar and the way the language works. I'm just hesitating to get into something like Carl Jung and his theory of the archetypes because um, I think that. Uh, that uh, Lewis made a kind of a clever remark about, about Jungianism where he said, um, you know, surely a description of water shouldn't itself be wet. And I think that's kind of a problem because, we, you know, it's, it's difficult to trace the origins of these things. And you can decide that the origin is a, a kind of a supernatural, uh, divine thing or you can say well that 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 doesn't that explanation doesn't really satisfy me and and i think it might be something else even if you don't know what that other thing is Hmm.
2: let's just change tack a bit because we've already talked about tolkien both his friendship with lewis and the fact that you've kind of lumped him in as similarly a fantasy author and so on but I mean, it's well known that he was one of Lewis's biggest critics at the time, that he wrote the Narnia stories. Look, Tolkien didn't like them all that much. Um, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Holly, um, but he, as I understand it from what I've read, felt that they were, um, A, a bit of a jumble of mythologies. Now, later scholarship may have put some of those pieces together for us. But I think he also... It's fair to say that if you read Lord of the Rings... um, The Hobbit and so on, there's not nearly as obvious a sort of, you know, this subtext of Christianity. Now, certainly, I'm not, I'm sure his Christian worldview informed the way he wrote, but you don't get nearly the same symbolism that is sort of staring at you once you see it. In, in the Narnia stories do you from Tolkien
3: well I actually wanted to jump in about his view of, of Narnia I think that's been really overplayed because he Tolkien only read Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe Um, didn't read any of the others okay um, and he he didn't care for it but Tolkien himself was the first to to say straight up that he had extraordinarily limited tastes he liked almost nothing of the medieval <laughs> literature no, and he was he was very straightforward about it so yeah. the fact that he didn't care for um, the way that that Don uh, Lewis wrote line the Witch, in the Wardrobe it says really almost nothing except that Tolkien had very limited taste and he didn't bother to read any of the rest of them. So I, I, as much as I admire Tolkien and he's a brilliant literary critic, I think we should actually take his word for it and say he really just didn't <laughs> – it wasn't to his taste.
2: Yeah. Um, but what about the – I mean, as I understand it as well, Tolkien wasn't perhaps totally on the same page as Lewis when it comes to inserting a more, a slightly more obvious sort of Christian undertones, uh, second level of meaning – because you don't seem to see that, obviously, quite as much in Lord of the Rings.
3: Well, actually, that's where I would I would argue with you a little bit because argue um, away. <laughs> because um, Tolkien himself described um, the Lord of the Rings as a profoundly religious and Catholic work. He described it that way, and it, it it is as I've I mean I've. The Lord of the Rings is is quite likely the most important book in my life. I've probably read it eight or nine times. Um, I, I just finished reading it for, like, the ninth time this summer. Um, and so – and I see what – he is doing something different from what Lewis is doing in the Narnia books. They're, they're, they're engaging in different modes and I think part of that might be that Lewis, um, in his interest in medieval literature, is actually a little later um, – with you know, his look at the medieval allegories. It's actually a bit later. Tolkien's very Anglo-Saxon. Um, so what Tolkien has done is he's built an entirely self-contained secondary world as no, no direct connection to what he would call the primary world, the way that um, Lewis, following kind of in the footsteps of many of the earlier... Um, Children's stories has the Pevensies come in from our world yeah. into, into Narnia. Time-honored usage. Tolkien takes a different route, and he builds an entirely self-contained world, much like, say, William Morris did, um, like the epics. And within that world, then, there's no direct point of, of comparison to say this is a symbol, but it's shot through and through with with Christ figures Frodo is a Christ figure. Gandalf is a Christ figure. Aragorn is a Christ figure. Um, That came out very very strongly for me in my latest reading, that he is really seeing the figure of Aragorn in many ways was preparatory for me in seeing Christ as depicted in the book of Revelation as the conquering, as the king, not just gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but wait, this is also Mm. the, the king of the universe. So I think there is this deep Christian sense in those books, but it's a little bit further yeah, down. Yeah,
2: and, and I was going to say, for you, I don't know, I um, can't recall now from the book whether you, you mention much of, of Tolkien's own work, Laura, but did, did, did you ha, have you engaged kind of the the Christian aspect of Tolkien's literature in the same way that you have Lewis?
1: Um, well, I, you know, I don't engage that much with the, the specifically Christian aspect of of Lewis's literature. In fact, I wanted to write a book that was mostly about all of the other things, and um, and so I do discuss Tolkien, but I discuss what his objections to Narnia were. And and Holly is right. We, we you know we don't have we actually don't even have that much of Lewis talking about Narnia. I I don't think that he took it that seriously in, in comparison to his writing for adults, which was kind of the value system that people had back then. Oh, I would but, so
3: completely disagree with
1: that, but <laughs> we'll let that go. <laughs> he, 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 he did not discuss it that much compared to how he discussed his other work. And Tolkien barely discussed Narnia at all. So we have these sort of fleeting remarks that were made or, or secondhand reports of things that, that, that Tolkien said about Narnia, and then we have both of their accounts and, and some biographers' accounts of their um, their relationship. So you know, you sort of have to guess about it. I think Holly's right when she she talks about um, Tolkien had a certain obsession with uh, for, forms of cultural purity, and particularly about um, about anglo-saxon culture and he resented the um the norman conquest and the introduction of all of these french elements <laughs> into english culture and that's one of the reasons why he was so ambivalent about any kind of medieval romance because they're so strongly influenced by french and norman language i mean he would have Really pointed to the language shaping the culture in a profound way. And, and he just, he didn't like it. He, he didn't like the French language. He, he resented that, that, the kind of, uh, it, it's kind of a mixture, you know. Uh, medieval romance is, uh, is a bit of a melting pot of, of, of Arab and, and, uh, Western European cultures and, and Narnia itself. Is, is that, you know, it's a mixture of, of elements from all different kinds of, of cultural traditions. In a fusion that I think probably felt really medieval to, to, to Lewis, um, and that felt sort of adulterated
3: to Tolkien. You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, I certainly, you know, Tolkien was very much an Anglo-Saxon um, writer. I'm a, a bit of a medievalist myself, so I, I, I'm kind of with Tolkien on this. <laughs> um, but it's interesting, um, re- just, just recently, just about a week ago, um, there was published his um, alliterative uh, fragments of his alliterative poem, The Fall of Arthur. And it's very interesting that in that unfinished poem, he actually brings in um, elements from the later um, French medieval tradition of Arthur. There's Lancelot in that poem, and treated actually in a, in a fairly complex way. So I think in some ways we, it's it we can't pigeonhole Tolkien quite quite so easily in that in that sense. I found that fascinating.
1: I felt like the fact that he was unable to really finish that testified to his ambivalence about that. I mean, he was clearly drawn to certain elements of the Arthurian tradition, but I don't think that he ever really was able to get past that those reservations. Well, actually, I, I would I would say that
3: Tolkien was almost incapable of finishing anything. <laughs> I mean, he almost didn't finish The Lord of the Rings. It took him, what, 15 years? And he never finished The Silmarillion, which was the absolute jewel of his entire life. Right, right. I, I just think he was incapable of finishing anything. <laughs>
2: Indeed, I think, um, sorry, as I understood it, um, Lewis had a, quite an impact on making him get get Lord of the Rings out of him sort of thing in the end. But um, we're talking about uh, literature, uh, Christianity, atheism and everything in between really today on the show as we uh, are joined by my guests Holly Ordway and uh, Laura Miller. Uh, if you'd be interested in getting in touch as well and perhaps leaving your thoughts, I, I wonder what impact Lewis's writings have had on you, whether you were... Uh, are an atheist, um, it's the same shoes as Laura here, perhaps uh, in the same shoes as Holly, having had a conversion as an adult, perhaps you've always been told by your parents the uh, the cat was let out of the bag early, as it were, when it comes to Lewis's writings and Narnia. But um, be interested to hear from you. Unbelievable at uk is the email address. You can get in touch as ever online as well um, via the Twitter and Facebook accounts, all the links from the Unbelievable uh, web page, premier.org.uk uh, slash unbelievable, premier.org.uk slash unbelievable. Going to take a, a break and we'll be back for the last 10 minutes or so of the programme, finishing up this conversation between my guests today on the programme, Holly Ordway and Laura Miller. So what do we make about literature that uh, attempts to point people towards Christianity? That's sort of where we started on uh, in the programme today. My guests are Holly Ordway and Laura Miller. Holly, uh, as I've mentioned already, a poet, a Christian apologist, and a story herself of being converted from atheism to Christianity, with literature very much an important part of that process. Uh, Laura Miller... Uh, is an atheist and has written about her reaction to C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia after she discovered having enjoyed them as a child that they were in fact sort of Christian allegories of one sort or another Um, we've we've branched off into talking as well in that context about when literature is done well as it were it it can be enjoyed for what it is Um, you know and the best type of literature is not the type that you feel is preaching at you whether it be an atheistic sort of (laughs) mantra or a Christian one or whatever Um, I I mean when it comes to the way that you've engaged obviously with a variety of authors Holly um, uh, in your career um, presumably it's not just those sort of Christian background type authors like Tolkien and and Lewis who, who have spoken to you and, and connected with you in a deep way through their literature. I'm sure people from a wide variety of backgrounds have, have done that in some way or another.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I think is a, is a fairly serious mistake that a lot of Christians make is to think that there has to be a Christian intention um, overt or, or you know subtle in, in a work for it to be valuable or for it to speak truth, and that's complete nonsense. Um, just complete, just complete rubbish.
2: And something C.S. Lewis would have disagreed with strongly himself.
3: Yeah. So I mean, so for instance, all of the the literature. Um, so for instance, Laura, you know, mentioned um, the Odyssey. Uh, you know, there's so much truth about you know the, the human experience as a, as a journey, the need for a father, um, the need to prove oneself. This this is all speaking truth about the human condition. And then thinking about my own experiences with literature, um, one writer that actually was, in a strange way, kind of influential for me was the um, the American atheist horror writer H.P. Lovecraft. Um, now he's not a great writer, uh, not definitely not a great writer, um, <laughs> but but he actually he's he's very good at evoking this kind of creepy, um, decaying New England towns, where I grew up, I'm from New England um, with strange monsters and things, and uh Lovecraft was a through and through atheist, hardline, um very vehement. Um, and yet, what he was writing about, as he as he wrote, he he actually writes about a cosmos that has an element of transcendence. Um and I think he's he's so good in part because he's so honest. He's really trying to talk about the experience of living in the world. Um, and I think human beings discover that there is some form of transcendence, however you end up kind of figuring it out. And he actually, argue, in a sense, argues in his in his stories that, that if we actually understood what was behind everything, we'd go mad because it's so horrible. <laughs> um, but I think that sense of a vision of there being meaning, even if the meaning is horrible, that this sense that there is meaning – is a, is a true statement.
2: And, and it's interesting because I, I did have Francis Spufford and uh, Philip Pullman on this show last year talking about literature and and writing and so on. And and it was interesting to hear Pullman, as an atheist writer, still not wanting to sort of, as it were, group himself too strongly with the sort of the Dawkins, purely naturalistic approach. He, he has some quite interesting ideas about this sort of matter having a kind of innate... Meaning that it kind of brings to itself, um, which doesn't really have any roots in a sort of thoroughgoing naturalistic outlook. But so he who said, you know, some of my atheist friends see me as a bit of a, um, a loon on that front and, and whatnot. But the, the, but it's interesting that that there again is someone who can evoke a lot in literature and, and presumably could, you know, evoke transcendent feelings in someone, even if they didn't personally hold to that kind of... Well, actually, kind of I, would,
3: I would argue that that what makes good literature good is that the author is, insofar as, as he's able to, speaking truth. So I don't think... The idea of evoking transcendent feelings, I think, is, is manipulation. And I think that's why so much Christian fiction fails.
2: Because if there is transcendence, it should be a secondary thing, in a sense. If,
3: well, if there is transcendence, then if you try to write truly it will come across mm. the same way that there. it is true that human beings have relationships with each other and so if you write realistically about human experience, it will include relationships. I think, first and foremost, any writer needs to be honest and, and truth-telling, and if if they are, then what they write will tell us something true about the world, incomplete perhaps, but, but true.
2: It's in your, your thoughts on that, Laura.
1: Well, I I agree with with Holly. I think that the best writers are expressing themselves in their experience of the world in their work. I think where, you know, the kind of alienating sort of didactic um, writing that we've been talking about as the negative example is really views any form of literature as the means to an end. And I think that that goes for readers as well as writers. If you think that, you know, you're, you're reading this story because it's going to instruct you or, you, you, know, you, you know, if you see it as something that you're doing in order to get to an end as opposed to for the, the experience itself, then you are having kind of a degraded experience of the, of the literature. And, you know, all different kinds of writers have all different kinds of selves and different experiences of the world and different beliefs. And if they are being truthful, as H- Holly put it, you're going to get a lot of that just without them even deliberately trying to do it. And literature is about the search for meaning, and, and, and that's why we read it, and that's why we write it, and... Even if we come up with different answers, I think we can all sort of identify with the search.
2: It's been great to have you both on the show today. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, uh, Holly, what's next for you uh, in terms of your own uh, journey and what you're up to, what you're writing, and that kind of thing.
3: Well, uh, just at present, I'm working on a second edition, actually, of my my book, Not God's Type. Um, from uh, with Ignatius, it's going to be a expanded edition that talks a little bit more about the role of imagination, which I had thought about but didn't include in the book, and also includes a chapter on my conversion to Catholicism, um, which is the the move that I that I made uh, this past year.
2: Okay, f- fascinating stuff. We look forward to that next year i suppose is when it'll yes. be coming out and maybe we can get you back to, to talk about it once it's once would, it's available would love to in the meantime i will put uh, l- l- put a link on the podcast obviously to where you can get a copy of the the current edition um, and of course to the website hieropraxis.com, if you can spell it uh, it's <laughs> good, good luck. One to visit or hollyordway.com will also get you there too. Holly lovely to meet you lovely to have you on the programme today thanks for sharing your your thoughts with us. Well
3: thank you so much for having me on I I thought this was delightful.
2: (laughs) And Laura thanks so much for coming on again and and sharing your experience too. Thanks
1: for having me.
2: It's great to talk to you if you want to catch up more with uh, Laura and the book magiciansbook.com is the website to go to Uh, links as ever with the podcast of today's programme you can find that at premier.org.uk slash unbelievable
0: Thank you for listening to a special edition of the C.S. Lewis podcast, which was originally recorded in 2013. Don't forget to visit the Premier Unbelievable website where there are lots of great articles and podcasts. Visit premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for bonus content, a free ebook and our regular updates. That's premierunbelievable.com. Thank you for listening and see you next time.